You know, I'm not really sure what else to say about that other than the fact that, yes, we are continuing our series on Peter this morning. Now, unbelievably, this is already the eighth week of this series. Does anybody else like think summer is just like flying by? I think it always goes really fast, especially for you teachers who like aren't working over the summer and aren't really looking forward to having to work again. But this morning we are looking at First uh, Peter chapter 5. And uh, as John said, the sermon title, I think, this morning almost sounds a little bit like it should be the title of a show on a fashion network. Uh, the sermon title is What to Wear This Summer. Now, of course, during any season, uh, in order to be well prepared, uh, we need to know what to wear and what not to wear. And summer is kind of unique in its do's and don'ts. There are some very strange and some very unique fashion trends that accompany the summer season. Like some of these, the first one here, goggles. You know, I don't think it matters who is wearing them or what style they are. Goggles just always look really strange to me. And I can't even really make them work on my face. I don't know if it's too flat or something, but every time I wear them, the water just fills them up anyway, so I don't even bother with the things. But goggles are definitely a very unique trend specific to summer. A second trend is swimsuits that are just a little bit too revealing. I mean, it's kind of gotten out of control. Look how revealing this woman's swimsuit is. You can see everything. Yeah, it's a rough joke, I know, for the morning, but you, you get the gist. A- another trend, swimsuits that probably don't reveal quite enough, like this next one. They call this the face kini. You know, someone here is just a little bit sensitive about not wanting to sunburn. And I can respect that, being a, a pale lad myself. Uh, another one, the summer shorts suits. And I have to say that very slow. If you try to say that quickly, it comes out as a curse word. But, you know, I just don't think I have the legs to be able to pull that look off. But for those of you guys who can rock that, I mean, I would highly recommend the next summer wedding you're at, rock that look. It'll be a lot more breezy than the normal kind of broiling feel that that you have at the summer wedding outdoors. And then the last one is my personal favorite, socks and sandals or the socks and flip-flops look in this case. Now, let's be honest here this morning. If you have rocked the socks and sandals look at least once this summer, raise your hand. Not many of us. All right, a few more are being honest as they're seeing it's a safe place. Yeah, I definitely have done this. I have a good excuse for why I did it, so you can talk to me about that later if you really want to know. But yeah, I've rocked the socks and sandals look. It's kind of comfy, really. But despite all of these riveting fashion trends, this isn't quite what we're getting at when we're talking about what to wear this summer. In fact, last night, kind of another trend not to follow, last night, I don't know if I was just nervous about speaking today or something, but last night I had a dream that I showed up to preach and I wasn't wearing pants, and I also lost my notes, and some of the guys in between services were trying to guess which one of those I would rather have happen, and I think I really actually would rather preach without pants than preach without notes. That's just my personality type. But listen, there are some things that Peter, uh, in chapter 5, there's something that he encourages us to wear, and then there's something else that he challenges us not to wear. And so these recommendations, they're actually more like character qualities or attributes that will help us to build good relationships uh, with those that we interact with. So if you haven't already done so, you can grab your outline, pull that out of your program guide, I use that to fill in the blanks, to follow along, to take some notes today. So what should we wear and what should we not wear this summer, according to Peter? He says, number one, this summer, clothe yourself with humility. 
He says, put on humility. Let me read from 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. It says this. It says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. There's lots of good stuff that we can dig into in this passage. I actually want to start at the end and then kind of work our way forward. And I want to start by looking at the command that he gives to all of us. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. Now, why would Peter choose to use the words, clothe yourselves? Why did he choose this word picture or this image as it relates to humility? Well, the, the word that Peter chooses here for clothe yourselves is actually not found in very many other places uh, in the New Testament uh, Greek text of Scripture. And, and it speaks to a very specific way that clothes were held on back in that day. You know, back then, they didn't have jeans and a t-shirt. They kind of had these one-piece tunic things that you just kind of pulled around yourself. And, and so one of the ways that clothes could be held on was just for them to kind of drape over you. This was the most common way. You know, picture putting on a, a big bathrobe. It's just kind of draped over you, and it's held on by your shoulders. Uh, but Peter wasn't referring to that way of clothing yourself. Instead, he was using a very uh, particular word that might be translated better as, as knotted on. And in those days, there were two pieces of clothing that were knotted on for very specific purposes. And the first one was a towel that was knotted around the waist. And its purpose was to define someone as a servant of a household. And of course, it was knotted so that as the servant was going around doing all the manual labor, taking care of all the household tasks, that it wouldn't start to to slide down or fall off. It was always where it needed to be. And these house servants who wore these towels, they were people of low social status. They were people who ended up doing the jobs that no one else wanted to do. So for Peter to use these particular words He's giving his readers a very vivid word picture. He's saying, serve others humbly like those servants do. They serve in the most dirty or most looked down upon ways. Take the very nature of a servant just like Jesus did. If you recall at the Last Supper, either no one was noticing or no one was choosing to attend to the most pressing need to wash up before dinner came. Back in that day, they they had open-toed sandals and the roads weren't paved. They were covered in dirt. And so by the time they got to dinner, their feet were nasty, dirty, and stinky. And they didn't sit at raised tables and chairs. They kind of reclined on the floor on pillows up against these almost coffee table height tables to eat. And so the disciples' feet are literally in each other's faces as they're getting ready to eat. But there was no house servant present in the room. So Jesus steps up to the plate, and for him to do so, for him to not on the servant's towel was for him to take the most menial position in the entire room. And as he nodded on the towel, he figuratively clothed himself with humility. 
he marked himself as a servant, and then he ministered to the need at hand. Now, I keep throwing around the word humility, and I think most of us have a general understanding when we say the word humility, what that means. But so that we kind of have a common understanding today, I want to dig into that word a little bit uh, and define it for you. A few years ago at uh, a leadership conference that most of our staff attends every year called the Global Leadership Summit, uh, there was an Australian pastor whose name was John Dixon, and he spoke on the topic of humility. And it was a really intriguing talk to me, and so I ended up buying and reading his book uh, called Humilitas, which is the Latin word for humility. And John calls humility the lost key to greatness. And this is how he defines humility. He says, humility is the noble choice to forego your status by, depl- by deploying your resources or your influence for the good of others before yourself. More simply, he summarizes his definition as a willingness to hold power in service of others. And to help illustrate his definition, uh, he tells a story that I want to read for you. And the context of the story is the city of Detroit in the 1930s. And this is how the story reads. It says, Three young men hopped on a bus in Detroit in the 1930s and tried to pick a fight with the lone man sitting at the back of the vehicle. They insulted him, but he didn't respond. They turned up the heat of their insults. He said nothing. Eventually, the stranger stood up. He was bigger than they had estimated from his seated position. Much bigger. He reached into his pocket and he handed them his business card, and then he walked off the bus and went on his way. As the bus drove on, the young men gathered around the card, curious to read the words. The words read, Joe Lewis, boxer. They had just tried to pick a fight with the man who would be the heavyweight boxing champion of the world from 1937 to 1949. The number one boxer of all time, according to the International Boxing Research Organization. Second on the list is Muhammad Ali, for reference. They apparently said of Lewis that he could knock out a horse with one punch. Now, I struggle to think how he got that reputation, but the point is simple. Here is a man of immense power and skill, capable of defending his honor with a single devastating blow. Yet he chooses to forego his status and to hold his power for others. In this case, for some very fortunate young men. I like that story to illustrate humility, and it reminds me of another story. Reminds me of the story of a man who used his power primarily to serve others. The story of a man whose actions single-handedly changed humility from being viewed as a detriment to being viewed as a virtue worldwide. The story of a man who had the power to do anything that he wanted or needed to do in order to save himself or defend himself, but who held that power and who submitted himself to brutal punishment and even death on a cross because he loved us and that's how he chose to serve us. Jesus is the epitome of humility and his example gives us a great model of how we should be humble, of how we should submit ourselves to one another regardless of whether the other person is on the same level of a, as us or above us or below us. And that kind of takes us back to the last piece of this passage that I want to dig into. Peter has this kind of discourse on uh, direction for the elders and then direction for those who are younger. And Peter first addresses the elders, 
It's interesting to me that when elders is translated, when the word elder is translated from Greek, it literally means aged. And the interesting or maybe ironic thing about this translation is that, well, in in that day and time, the elders may in fact have been aged. If you stuck them in our culture here today, they wouldn't really be that old. We're talking about guys, you know, as young as their 30s or 40s. And so I'm in my 30s, and I don't know about the rest of you guys who are in your 30s and 40s, but I don't feel wise yet. I don't feel like I understand what it means to lead humbly yet. And the elders probably didn't either. And so Peter addresses them, and he gives them some very specific teaching on how they should be viewing their leadership role. You know, I think the temptation for leaders, whether or not you're a manager at work or a leader at church or in the community, whether you're a teacher, a parent, a husband, the list goes on and on, the temptation for leaders is to use our leadership position selfishly, not humbly. To almost view our leadership position as some type of uh, entitlement. And so Peter gives some clear direction as to how to stay humble and to how to view our leadership in a godly way. He says first to them and also to us, he says, be shepherds of the flock, whatever flock you've been entrusted with. And this is another interesting choice of words for Peter. Because if you remember, after Jesus rose from the dead, he had a conversation with Peter and he asked Peter three times, he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter kept saying yes, but Jesus kept asking And Peter kept becoming more and more confused and more and more offended each time. But Jesus eventually said, if you love me, then feed my sheep. Jesus wanted Peter to view those that he led as sheep that needed a caring shepherd. And now years later, Peter had internalized that mindset. So much so that he was now encouraging others to view those that they lead in the same way. So for those that we lead, we're supposed to love them. We're supposed to care for them. We're supposed to humbly lead them like a shepherd would lead his sheep or like a pet owner with their pet. Next, Peter says to not pursue dishonest gain, but to be eager to serve. He says when you lead, your intention shouldn't be to gain something. It shouldn't be to receive power or celebrity or money, but instead your intention, your motivation should be to do good for others. Because otherwise, it's, it's not really serving in the first place. He says, don't just look how you can be benefited through your own service. Anybody can do that. Look for ways to not on the towel of humility. Look for ways to bless others, just like Jesus came, not to be served, but to serve. And then finally to the elders, Peter says, don't lord your power and authority over others, but use it to be an example. Use it to model the right way to lead. Don't just try to be a boss, be a friend. Don't just be a leader, be a mentor. Show how much you care before you try to show that person how much you know. So Peter gives all of this wisdom to those of us who hold leadership positions, and then he switches to another audience. He says, yeah, I didn't forget about the rest of you. To those of you who are younger, or to those of you who are in situations where you are the one who's being led or influenced by someone else, I want to encourage you to act in the very same way, humbly. This call for humility isn't just for the people who are in charge. It's for you too. So show your leaders respect. Be a good follower of them. Be submissive to them. Honor them. And I think the truth is that all of us, in different roles, different relationships, find ourselves in both camps. 
there are places where we lead or influence other people. And then there are also places where we are led or influenced by others. And in both camps, we're going to be tempted to be selfish instead of to be humble. Those people who are in the power are going to be tempted to abuse that power. And those people who are not in the power are going to be tempted to be difficult to those people who are in power. What does that look like? Well, think about yourself as a teenager. Were you difficult to your parents? Were you obnoxious to the people who were holding the power? I was actually looking for a sermon illustration here, and so I asked my mom this week, I said, hey, can you give me an example of a time that I was difficult or, or obnoxious to you and dad? And she actually couldn't think of any, which I guess means no permanent scars were left, which is good. But, but I remember my heavy sighs. I remember the whatever responses, right? I remember acting like I didn't understand what they were asking me to do when I really did, just because I wanted to be difficult and make their life harder. And I can see by some of your smiles that the tactics really haven't changed for teenagers in the last 15 years. (laughs) You can relate. But Peter says that this whole power in relationships thing is a challenge that requires everyone to commit to humility with one another. And so he says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So to maintain and to grow healthy relationships that honor God, we first need to clothe ourselves with humility. But Peter says that there's also something that we shouldn't be wearing. He says as we put on humility, there's something else that needs to be taken off. And that's our second point. This summer, put on humility, and number two, take off anxiety. Take off anxiety. Verses 6 and 7 say, Humble yourselves. Familiar language for Peter in this chapter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Now, I've read and I've heard verse 7 a million times. Cast all your anxiety on him, or cast all your cares on him, because he cares for you. But rarely have I put it together that this encouragement is actually layered on top of a discussion about humility in relationships. I've always just kind of taken this anxiety verse as a cool, randomly placed statement. And even taken as that, it is good. It's, it's good advice. But what does it mean that this statement is made in the context of humility in relationships with this power dynamic? I think it means that you need to let him lead you in dealing with anxieties that result from relationships where service and submission are so easy to mess up, where it's so difficult for both parties to stay humble, which honestly I feel like is pretty much every relationship. So now seems like a good time to ask ourselves, what does anxiety look like then in this context? What does relational anxiety look like in situations where one person holds more power or more experience than the other person does? One of the reasons that uh, I love attending over here, is that you guys do such a good job of uh, interacting with the person on the stage. At least that's your reputation. (laughs) If we tried to do that over at the other campus, there'd just be crickets chirping like pretty much all morning. So I want to engage in a little bit of interaction now. And uh, because I'm a little anxious about this, I do have some rewards for you if you choose to uh, participate. Some, Some Snickers mini squares here. 
But two questions that I want to ask that relate to this, and here's the first question. What does relational anxiety look like as the older or wiser or more powerful person in a relationship? For that person, what fears or anxieties do they have about relating to someone younger or less experienced than them? So go ahead. You can just call out an answer or raise your hand, whatever you want to do. We'll take three responses. (laughs) You're afraid you're going to get that as the older. Yes. Okay. We're going to watch your heads. That's not going to be long enough. Good catch. What else? What fears or worries does the older, more powerful person have about interacting with the younger person? Rejection. How so? All right, this is, this is pretty far back. All right, not bad. How about one more? The older person? You've believed this thing for so long, and then what if you actually are trying to tell the younger person about this, and you're not right? All right, good. Yeah, what about you're afraid that your experience isn't going to be respected? Like you've spent all this time learning about something or life experience, and then this new person walks in, and they're like, I don't know who you are, right? But you, you've spent so much time, you're afraid you're not going to be respected. Maybe you're afraid you're not going to be relatable or relevant to the newer person. Or you're afraid to come off as pompous or proud. Lots, lots of good answers. All right, another one, different question. What about if you are the younger, less experienced person in the relationship? When you're the one who is not holding the power, what anxieties do you feel about relating to someone older or more experienced, or more powerful than you are? We'll take three responses again, because I have three Snickers minis, ironically enough. Afraid you'll look foolish, yeah. Like, I'm going to look like I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, what else? Say that again? Mm, yeah. Getting better, the more practice I toss these, this is good. One more. The younger, less experienced person. Anxieties you feel about interacting with the person who's in power. Right. Yeah. A little short. You know, I think a few other things. uh, You know, afraid that just because you're green, just because you're new, uh, that your opinions or your thoughts will be written off. Uh, Maybe afraid that you're going to be micromanaged or afraid that you're going to be judged. You know, all of these are very valid fears. They're very valid anxieties. And it's okay to feel them. It's actually not ungodly to feel anxious. But then what defines us as Christ followers is how we choose to respond to that anxiety. So what is the right way to respond to anxiety? First, let me tell you the wrong way. The wrong way is denial. The wrong way is avoidance. You know, it seems at the time when we're anxious about something that avoiding that thing is actually going to be the best way to go, that it's going to be the easiest way out. But the truth is that avoidance actually acts as a power source for anxiety. Avoidance takes your 30-watt anxiety light bulb and illuminates it to 60 watts. You know, my family just got back from a week-long vacation in Ocean City, New Jersey, And I really enjoyed uh, on vacation this year kind of getting to experience it through the eyes of my son. Uh, We have one son, his name is Weston, he's three years old. Uh, And as it goes with temperances of kids, 
You know, some kids, when it comes to a new situation, they're like all in. They want to get their hands dirty. They want to experience it. Weston is not that kid. Uh, He is definitely more of a slow to warm up kid. And I guess he has two cautious parents, so that's to be expected. Uh, But he's a kid who experiences moderate amounts of anxiety over trying new things. Uh, Last year when we went to the beach, and I have a picture of Weston from last year at the beach, I think, Scott, picture, Weston, beach, yes, there it is. So this is a year ago, he's grown up a little bit since then, but I like that pose he struck there. But last year when we went to the beach, it was the first year that he really would have been old enough to be able to get into the ocean. Um, But because it was something new, he was afraid of it. And so because he was anxious about it, he avoided it. And because he avoided it throughout the week, as we kept talking about it, he became more and more anxious about it. When we avoid something that makes us anxious, that avoidance uh, actually increases and intensifies our anxiety about that thing. Another example, have you ever been anxious about a hard conversation that you knew you needed to have with someone? And the longer that you put that conversation off, the more and more anxious you became, the more and more churny it became in the pit of your stomach. It's another perfect example. So if avoidance isn't the answer then, then how do we get past anxiety? And how does this tie back into our conversation related to this relational dynamic of power or age or experience? Well, there's a guy named William Backus. Um, He's a Christian psychologist. Uh, You may have heard of the book Telling Yourself the Truth. That's probably one of his more popular books that he wrote. Um, But there's another book that he wrote called The Good News About Worry. And he says that to get over anxiety, you need to take action. He says, instead of spending your energy berating yourself for worries that plague you or anxieties that distress you, spend your energy instead applying faith and action to your fears. So what does that look like? What are some practical strategies that we can use to help work through anxiety? I have three strategies I want to give you. You might want to write these down. The first one is positive self-talk. Positive self-talk. Use power language instead of victim language. You know, our self-talk is really the way that we think. And the way that we think affects the way that we feel. So victim language, when it uses words like can't or won't or never, you know, when we think in victim language, then we feel anxious. And when we feel anxious, then we act in avoidance. And remember, avoidance intensifies anxiety. And so it's kind of this back and forth cycle that never ends. But when we use power language, power language uses words that promote feelings of self-worth or personal power. So words or phrases like can or try or empowered by God, I will. So positive self-talk is one strategy. A second one is to set small achievable goals. Set small, achievable goals. How many of you guys have ever seen the movie, What About Bob? It's probably like, what is that, the 80s maybe? Early 90s? It's been a while now. What About Bob is is one of my probably top 10 favorite movies. It stars Bill Murray as this guy named Bob who's got all sorts of issues. But so he goes to this psychologist, and his psychologist's advice is to take baby steps. And that's kind of what we're talking about. Small, achievable goals. Essentially, instead of in whatever thing you're anxious about, trying to go 
from zero to 60 all in one fell swoop. He says, no, just baby step it. Go from zero to 10. And then when you get to 10, go from 10 to 20 or 10 to 25. And as you start to uh, experience and achieve these small goals, it will help you to build your confidence and start to knock down the walls of anxiety. And then the third strategy, it might sound cliche or even a little far-fetched, but it's exercise. Exercise. The truth is that God pretty marvelously designed our bodies so that exercise has this incredibly positive effect on our minds. When we exercise, our brains release these things called endorphins and adrenaline and serotonin and dopamine and all of these crazy-sounding chemicals that work together to improve our mood and essentially to make our mind feel good. So even 20 to 30 minutes of moderate exercise a few times a week can make a world of difference in trying to overcome anxiety. I remember several seasons of my life where maybe right after Weston was born, where there were months or maybe it was even like a year, I would be ashamed to admit, at a time that I just did not exercise at all. And not only do you feel that in your body, but you also feel that in your mind and in your emotions. Exercise has great positive effects for your mind and your emotions. So back to my beach story about Weston. My long-term goal for Weston is just that he would be able to have a blast in the ocean, that he would be able to swim and jump through the waves and ride waves, to to not be inhibited at all. And, And so this year, in the weeks leading up to our vacation, going to the beach, I started talking about how fun it was going to be to play in the ocean. That we, that we could kind of race the ocean from you know, where the waves were crashing back to the shore, and that if we ran fast enough that we'd be able to beat it. Or, or that as the waves were, were coming in and trying to get us, we could jump over them. Right? And, so, and so my positive talk got him to start talking about what he would do in the ocean. So he had this positive self-talk that started. And, and then we set a small achievable goal to just get in the water a little bit to feel it to get your toes wet, to get your ankles wet. And so his positive self-talk motivated him to run into and out of the water, to run through the shallows, to jump over the little ripples at the very edge of the beach. And as he began uh, experiencing these small achievements, he began to break down the walls of anxiety that surrounded swimming in the ocean. And every day he became just a little bit more comfortable with getting in the water. You know, and just as Weston had to take action to begin shedding his ocean anxiety, you and I have to begin to take action to shed our relational anxieties or any anxiety that we struggle with. We can't avoid them. So in these relational anxieties, we've got to have the courage to face the people in those relationships where we're anxious. We've got to humble ourselves. It's that word again. We've got to be honest and vulnerable with each other. We've got to be willing to share our fears and anxieties, our fears and our feelings with that person. And when we admit some of those anxieties to the other person, at least as my experience, what my experience has been, is that as we're vulnerable, as we start to share, that that leads them also into being vulnerable and starting to share about some of the feelings that they have about our relationship. And then that mutual humility and vulnerability creates this bridge that we can walk across as we continue to grow our relationship. And when we cast our anxiety on God, I think we experience a similar result. When we're humble, when we're vulnerable before God, when we show him that we trust him with the most challenging, important, 
relationships that we have, our relationship with Him also deepens. And the deeper our relationship is with God, the more secure we are in that, the more secure we are as we go back to these relationships that we have anxiety in. So Peter's encouragement to us is to put on humility and to take off anxiety. And when we do that, we're living God's way. So Peter gives us one last warning, that when we do life God's way, there's someone else that is not a big fan of that and is actually going to be fighting against us doing that. I want to look at the last passage in your scripture there. It's from 1 Peter 5, 8 to 9a. It says, Be alert and of sober mind, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So resist him, standing firm in the faith. When it comes to relationships, Peter says, the enemy is prowling around like a lion on the hunt. He's looking for someone and some relationship to steal and to kill and to destroy. He doesn't want us to be in right relationships with one another. He wants us to bring destruction and not reconciliation to our relationships. And so Peter says, just be aware that this dynamic exists. Peter knows from his own boneheaded experiences that being humble is hard to do. And that if you give him a foothold that Satan will be looking to convince you that in any relational dynamic that you are the right one and that you deserve to have the upper hand. But Peter knew that wasn't true and in our hearts, we know that that's not true. So Peter calls us to stand firm, to be dependent upon and reliant upon Jesus who is the greatest model for humility that we have. Earlier on in point one, I told you that When Peter said to clothe yourself with humility, he was using very specific language that referred to to nodding on certain garments. He was using language to refer to two different types of garments that would be nodded on in such a way as to show permanency or identity. And the first example that I shared was the servant's towel that Jesus nodded on to clothe himself with humility, to serve his fellow brothers by washing their feet. But I never told you what the other garment was. The other purpose for nodding on was the tying on of a sash that would be held up by one shoulder and then, you know, drape across the front and back of your body. And the sash was usually of a very distinct color and cloth, and it marked your status in the community and what tribe or family you came from. So by wearing this sash in a very real sense, you were showing everyone that, hey, this is my identity. And identity in this world is kind of elusive, isn't it? I mean, we, we try to clothe ourselves with so many different things. We're, we're trying to find the sash that fits just right, that won't fall off. And so we try to find our identity in things like our spouse or our kids or our career or our educational level or our profile in the community. And the list goes on and on and on. But none of these sashes are held on quite the right way. So what Peter is saying is that for those of us who follow Christ, he says our identity, the sash that won't fall off, is the sash of humility. The sash that signifies an awareness of and dependence on Jesus. The sash that indicates that we are part of an incredible family of God with an unbelievably generous Father. So let's wear that sash proudly clothing ourselves with humility, ridding ourselves of anxiety, 
and standing firm in the faith as we live between this challenging world and between the hope of heaven, the perfect world. Let me pray for us. Jesus, as we live in the tension between the hardship of this world and the hope of heaven, teach us to be pure in mind and in action, to interact with and to relate to others in a humble way that shows them value. Give us pure intentions. Teach us to honor each other and to sacrificially serve each other the way that you have served us. And teach us to trust you with the most intricate, important details and relationships of our lives so that we can grow in relationship with you and so that our life can operate out of a confidence that you give us and not out of fear from anxieties that are deep within us. Jesus, make us more like you because we love you. And it's in your most holy and awesome name that we pray. Amen.